Spirit. So, Team Grace, what I'd like to do is go through our two strands that we've been focusing on here at Our Lady of Grace. So, first is the different parts of the Mass. The second are the parts of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist. And we're doing this because right now our country is in a national Eucharistic revival. The bishops of our country have said we have to fan in the flame our belief and our devotion to the true presence of the Lord Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. So first you have to work on our belief. But sometimes we can believe but have very little devotion. So you have to both believe and also have strong devotion, adoration, thanksgiving for the Lord truly present with us. So that's why we're walking through these different parts here at Our Lady Grace, so we can take advantage fully, spiritually, of this National Eucharistic Revival. So with that, let's go to the different parts of the Mass. Let me ask you, Team Grace, how many main parts are there of the Mass? Four. Bravo. And what is the first part of the Mass? And what's the second part of the Mass? Exactly, good. And we've walked through the whole introductory rites. Right now in our series, we're in the Liturgy of the Word, so we're kind of slowly walking through that. We're slowly walking through that, different parts of the Liturgy of the Word. So we talked about that first reading and the psalm from the Old Testament and why that Old Testament is so important. Remember we talked about how in the Old Testament we know about God. We also know about Jesus Christ. We learn something about him. So for example, our first reading today from Habakkuk, the prophet was raised up because God's people were brought back from Babylonia after decades and generations of exile. And they arrived in the promised land and it wasn't what they were expecting. And they were greatly disappointed. And many just began to give up. So God raised up Habakkuk and said, you tell my people, I'm going to fulfill my promises. Tell them to be patient and to wait, that promises will come. Now we can draw from that Old Testament wisdom and understand God's going to fulfill all the promises he made to us. And we can also see that he fulfilled this promise of an anointed Savior, that he sent Jesus Christ to us. So again, the Old Testament helps us. Also, that psalm helps us to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The psalmist tells us today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Listen to what God is asking of you and do it. So again, that movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We spoke about that. Then we spoke about that second reading from one of the 21 apostolic letters of the New Testament. And that apostolic letter, that second reading, that applies to us. And we know there's 21 apostolic letters. Let's see if we remember this. How many letters were written or influenced by St. Paul? 14. 14, bravo, 14. And then we have seven Catholic letters, they're universal letters, and those were written by other apostles. In fact, we know they were written by four other apostles. Let's see if we remember those other apostles. Who were they again? Peter, bravo. John, good. James, all right, James, all right, thank you, James. <laughs> Woo. And? Jude, exactly. We spoke about this last week, and I encouraged you that if you're looking for a place to read in the scriptures, you could go to the apostolic letter that's been assigned to you, right? So hopefully those who are sitting here read Jude and James and John and, of course, Peter. So that second reading is drawn from those apostolic letters. And the apostolic letter is important that we realize that that's not being, just being addressed to the person 2,000 years ago. So today we have the second letter of St. Paul to Timothy. This is St. Paul's last letter. He's an old man. He's about to be martyred for our faith. So oftentimes, Paul had to be a fighter. He had to be. He's fighting for the gospel, fighting to have believers follow the way of the Lord Jesus. But in 2 Timothy, we see the father heart of St. Paul. 
very endearing, very gentle. He's trying to speak to Timothy, and he's just telling Timothy, do what the Lord has asked. But you know, in this second reading today, St. Paul wasn't simply speaking to Timothy. St. Paul's speaking to us. God is speaking to us. What did St. Paul say to you today? Stir into flame the spirit you have received. That means step up. Stir it into flame. You have not received the spirit of cowardice. Why are so many Christians acting like cowards? And St. Paul tells us, you have received, each of us, we received the spirit of love and power and self-control. He goes on to tell us that we should be willing to accept our part of the hardships on behalf of the gospel. Now Paul is speaking that to us. How does that apply to you in your life today? Have you compromised? I think it's so funny to find so many people who are so devout here at the altar of God, but then they walk out those doors and in their neighborhoods or their workplaces, they won't talk about Jesus, they won't speak about moral truth, they won't even pray before their meals because they're embarrassed of the Lord and they're embarrassed of what their neighbors might think of them. And yet they come before the altar of God and they look so pious. We call those hypocrites. Today St. Paul admonishes us. He tells us to fan into flame what we have received and be willing to accept the hardships that come with the gospel. You see what St. Paul has to speak to us? Because just like 2,000 years ago, Timothy wanted to compromise and take the easy path. So in our own discipleship, because of our fallen nature, we sometimes want to take the easy path. Sometimes we don't want to do what the Lord is asking of us. Sometimes we want to just prefer to sit back and not accept the hardships of the gospel. So that's the second reading. And again, in the second reading, it's important that we understand that that second reading applies to us. It's either a theological explanation or an application to our discipleship. But then what happens after the second reading? Well, we stand up. Now, honestly, before the Protestant Reformation, we would have been standing for the entire liturgy of the Word. When the Protestants invented the pews, Mother Church said, that's a good idea, right? We're going to go and have some pews, right? That's why we can sit during parts of the liturgy of the Word. But after the second reading, we stand up. And why do we stand? Every posture in the liturgy has a meaning of purpose. Even the postures we take is Mother Church teaching us. And we stand because we are preparing to hear the Lord. The Lord Jesus, God himself, is going to speak to us in the gospel. Jesus is going to announce the gospel right here in this assembly, just as he did 2,000 years ago in Nazareth, Capernaum, throughout Galilee, and into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be speaking. And we stand up when our Lord speaks to us. We stand so that we are ready. We are attentive. He understands that our hearts are open. We stand because the Lord is about to announce his gospel. And that gospel is going to give us wisdom, correction, encouragement, it's going to answer our prayers. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, we should say in our hearts, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We should readily seek the wisdom that is given to us by the proclamation of the gospel. And again, to get ready, we stand up. And then what happens after we stand up? Well, some people do this. I like the people who kind of just crawl in the pew above them. Right? You ever see that? It's amazing, right? <laughs> Like, it's like, if that was the Olympics, I was like, I get that a 9.2, huh? Right? <laughs> or some people, they stand up and do this. Ah, 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 ah. What are they doing? Right? Are they okay? <laughs> what are we supposed to be doing? We stand up and then we start praising God. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah, praise God, right? We're just announcing praises and praises. But it's tempered. 
And sometimes we don't realize what we're doing because we use the original Hebrew. Alleluia can be translated as praise God. We stand up and we start praising God and announcing His benevolence and His majesty and His goodness right before we are ready to hear Him speak. And it's important that we claim the Alleluia and understand what's happening. Alleluia, that expression in Hebrew is so difficult we really can't translate it. That's why the early fathers said we're going to keep that in Hebrew. There are certain Hebrew words we can't translate, not justly. We can't really translate amen, so the father said keep it in Hebrew. We can't really translate hosanna, so the father said keep it in Hebrew. And we can't really translate alleluia, so the father said keep it in Hebrew. Because if we were trying to summarize fully what alleluia means, it means praise God, exalt him, magnify him, glorify him, rejoice in him, lift up your spirit, announce his glory. I think the Alleluia could best be summarized by Our Lady at the beginning of her Magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's an Alleluia. That's an Alleluia. But you see, dear friends, we've lost the Alleluia. And I'm going to encourage us to reclaim the Alleluia. First of all, at Mass, we should be readily singing loudly. Do you know St. Jerome told us in the 4th century that the earth shook because of the singing of the Alleluia and the Hosannas of the Christians. My goodness, our forebears would be so embarrassed if they saw us, wouldn't they? Like, are you, are you sure that's a Christian community? Because we should be announcing loudly, robustly, that Alleluia, my whole being for you, Lord, I praise you, I glorify you. Who am I that you should come to me? Who am I that you should redeem me? Who am I that you would speak to me and teach me? That Alleluia is so important. It's, all, it's important that Alleluia here at the altar of God, but it's also important that we take the Alleluia out into the midst of the world. We look at the world today, it's fallen, broken, it breaks our hearts. We go out there and it kicks us around, and knocks us to the ground, it kicks us, it punches us, sucker punches left and right. It's a fallen world, it's a sinful world, it's a dark world. And there are many Christians who go out into that darkness and they let the darkness get them. They allow their hearts to be eclipsed by that darkness. They begin to think that the world and everything has fallen. Nothing's good anymore. Nothing's worth anything. They surrender their hearts that's consecrated to Jesus Christ. They surrender their hearts to the fallen world. No, we need to reclaim the Alleluia. We go out into the fallen world and we see the brokenness and the hurt. We know people die of cancer and Alzheimer's and heart disease. Finances never come together. Marriages fail. Friends betray us. And the list goes on. It's a fallen world. And we understand that we're not minimizing, minimizing it. We walk out there and we feel those punches. We know the hurt that, is, that comes with the fallen world. But we are bold enough as Christians, we go out there even as we see the suffering and the hardship and we with boldness announce, Alleluia! Alleluia! Praise God! For that fallenness and that brokenness, that does not define us. And that does not have to claim our hearts. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And that fallenness and that brokenness doesn't define us. We can soar above it because we know that our home is heaven. Every time we try to create an artificial heaven in this world, we get our hearts broken. My goodness, in the West, we are so trying constantly to build fake heavens. How many even Christians put their hopes in the things of this world? And then they act as if God has betrayed them when the fallenness of the world strikes. Because we are delusional. We create artificial worlds worlds that God has not promised us. 
We have accepted to follow the cross of the Lord, to suffer with Him, that we might work out our salvation to be with Him in paradise. That's why we can go out, not being Pollyannas, not trying to minimize the real sufferings of the hardship, but look at this world and say, Hallelujah! Praise God! I lift my heart above these sufferings. Do you know our forebears? They would sing the Alleluia as they were being fed to animals. Our forebears sang the Alleluia as they were being turned to human torches because they understood the power of allowing the heart to be raised by the grace of God. We are the sons and daughters of the resurrection. We have been lifted above the fallenness of this world. If you prefer, dear friends, you can wallow in the cesspool. But we have been taken out of that cesspool. The fallen world wants to drag us down, but the hallelujah will lift us up. And God wants to lift us up. God wants us to know our dignity. He will allow us to suffer, but he will be there. His grace will come through. He will walk with us, and he will welcome us into paradise if we have allowed his grace to make us fit to dwell with him. We have to reclaim our hallelujahs. I encourage you your own spiritual life. Claim that hallelujah. The next time you find something that's just so overwhelming or so distressing or so upsetting, just in your heart, simply just say, Alleluia. 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 I'm not going to let this fallenness steal my consecration to Jesus. I'm not going to let this take over my heart. So we need to reclaim the Alleluia. But I encourage you. St. Paul tells us today, stir into flame the spirit you have received. And I encourage you to reclaim that Alleluia as a part of that stirring back of the Spirit who dwells within you. You know, once we understand the Alleluia, we can begin to understand that when the church suspends the Alleluia, that should fill us with a little bit of sorrow. Mother Church tells us we can't sing the Alleluia during Lent. Last night I made a mistake at the Masses. I said Lent and Advent. But actually we can sing the Alleluia during Advent. But during Lent, Mother Church says we can't. And why would she do that? Because, dear friends, the only time that darkness can get into our hearts is when we let it. When we choose the passing things of this world over the eternal glory of God. When we choose to sin. Sin allows that darkness into our hearts. So during the penitential season of Lent, Mother Church pauses the Alleluia. And we pause the Alleluia. That should fill us with sorrow. And that sorrow should lead us to greater repentance. Because we know that the only thing that can take the Alleluia is our sinfulness. And so we seek to do even greater penance in order to repent of our sins and draw closer to God, that we can sing our alleluias. I think it's important we understand what the church is doing. Regrettably, my sense is sometimes when people find out, well, there's no alleluia during Lent, oh, good, that means the Mass will go faster. That's regrettable. Rather than missing the spiritual opportunity, what the church is teaching. Once we understand what the church is doing and what things represent and what they symbolize, we can see how the church teaches us. Our postures, what we do, when these are paused and suspended, we can begin to appreciate what the church is trying to do in order to help us to be better disciples. So I encourage you to understand the Alleluia. When we get to Lent and we can't sing Alleluia, let your heart be filled with that sorrow and turn that sorrow into penance. Incidentally, by ancient tradition, we, will not, we do not sing Alleluias during funerals. Now, some of our supposed progressive parishes, they sing Alleluias left and right at funerals. But traditionally, we don't sing Alleluia at a funeral for the same reason. Our heart is filled with sorrow. Our sorrow leads to repentance, not simply for our sins, but in the case of a funeral, for the sins of our loved ones. And it's important that we understand that when we bury a fellow believer, we ask God for mercy. We're not canonizing the person. We're not celebrating their life, whatever that means. 
We are asking God for his mercy upon this soul. We also are willing to do penance for the person. That whatever purgation they might be undergoing, we can be a part of that. I remember when we were planning my father's funeral, they asked, do you want hallelujahs? I was a guest in another priest's church. It's his rules. But I asked him, please, let's not sing hallelujah. Please don't do that. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit in a Christian funeral. So we pause hallelujahs by tradition. Now again, once we understand that, we see what the church is doing. Okay, so dear friends, those are the parts of the Mass. And trust me, I want to keep going. I want to tell you about the Gospel. But we're going to save that for next week. For now, I just want us to focus on the Alleluia. And your spiritual eyes will encourage you, reclaim your Alleluia. You are Easter people. You are sons and daughters of the resurrection. Claim that Alleluia. Okay, with that, I want to move to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And if you have your Catechism, I'm going to encourage you to join me at number 1344. I know many of you have your fancy new catechisms from last week. Excellent. We saw so many of the catechisms uh, being taken, so I hope that means more Christian homes have Bibles and copies of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So again, number 1344, it's a short number, and it reads, Thus from celebration to celebration, as they proclaim the Paschal mystery of Jesus until he comes, the pilgrim people of God advances, following the narrow way of the cross toward the heavenly banquet, when all the elect will be seated at the table of the kingdom. Now remember last week we spoke about how the church says that from the upper room until the time, the time when the Lord returns in glory, the sacrifice is going to be represented to every generation. Here the church is saying the same. From celebration to celebration, we continue to have the Paschal mystery represented. What's the Paschal mystery? The passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord. At every Mass, and we've emphasized this here at Our Lady of Grace, at every Mass, we participate in the representation of the Lord's passion, death, and resurrection. That was offered once historically over 2,000 years ago, but in every generation, it is represented by the power of the Holy Spirit at every Catholic Mass. So we participate in this Paschal mystery. The church says, the pilgrim people of God. We are on the move. We are on the way, dear friends, in order to get to that place of paradise. We are a pilgrim people. But look also what the Catechism says, who follow the narrow way. Remember, the Lord Jesus tells us that wide is the road, and many choose it, and it leads to perdition. There are some even here who are warming our pews who are on the wide road to perdition. We have to follow the narrow way in order to seek salvation. What's the narrow way? We die to ourselves. We die to ourselves. I die to myself, I show mercy. I die to myself, I serve others. I die to myself, I seek out the poor, the sick, the suffering. The narrow way of the Lord Jesus, that's the path to salvation. And it will conclude when the elect sit at the banquet in heaven. Remember, dear friends, the Mass? This is the foretaste, the appetizer. The banquet is waiting for us in heaven. And to those who seek to be pilgrim people, to follow the way, that narrow way, allow grace to transform them, they will be there at the eternal banquet. But we have to cooperate with grace. Okay, so that's the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and there's more, of course, there. Dear friends, I'm going to just encourage you, be active in your participation at Mass. Understand what we have received. And then secondly, make sure you're reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There is so much wealth of knowledge and wisdom here, so I encourage you to read the Catechism. As we celebrate this Eucharist, ask the Lord to fill your hearts today, to give you that hallelujah, and to give you a deeper faith and devotion to the Lord's presence among us.